tonight on Lost in the Vault. <laughs> Ow, Popeye, save me! Don't worry, sweetie. I is what I is. That's grammatically incorrect. She's right. It should be I am what I am. I knows. I'm just not educated. But you'll see, I'll go back to school and get me GED. And by 1933, I'll be using the goods grammar. <laughs> Look out, Popeye! <laughs> I graduated from Princeton. Well, that was a long fucking time to get to the next episode, wasn't it? Yeah. I've been asleep this entire time. <laughs> this entire three weeks. Really? Yeah. I mean, we had to work until like three in the morning doing the Max Keeble episode. Yeah, so, so I took a little hibernation. Yeah. Actually, if you've re- been listening as of late, you know the real reason that we've had this delay. First, let's start with our formal introductions. Hello there. Welcome to Lost in the Vault. I'm Dal Agatone. I'm Amanda. Yep. The other one. The other one. And I forget my own introduction. <laughs> it's been three weeks. It's, it's been three weeks. I just woke up. <laughs> um. So, as if you don't recall, um, the reason for the delay in this episode is that we try our best to get everything on schedule and on time because, you know, we owe that to you. I mean, you're listening to us ramble on about Disney movies nobody gives a shit about anymore. Might as well do it on a schedule. Yeah. (laughs) So us doing that, um, you know, it's important to keep on a schedule. But unfortunately, as you know, my grandfather passed away. So a lot of the craziness of like having to head back home for the funeral Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff meant that there was a delay. So in the future, we will definitely try to do our best to keep things on a consistent schedule. So with that in mind, welcome to an episode we've been personally pretty excited about. Yeah. Robert Altman's Popeye from 1980, starring Robin Williams as the Sailor Man and Shelley Duvall as his Goyle Olive Oil. This, I think this That's mo- the worst Popeye ever. I think uh, this movie might have been like one of my hibernation dreams, actually. <laughs> one of the weird, crazy things that happened in my in my slumber that I just envisioned in my head and didn't think was real. Yeah. And not only are we excited this episode because of the movie we're discussing, but we're also excited because this episode has our first ever guest star. So let's bring him out right now. Ladies and gentlemen, he is the co-host of These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast. We're so happy to have him on the show. A great friend of myself and, by extension, the show. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Peter Vofronk. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much. You're all all (laughs) wonderful. All two of you. This will be some big testing grounds because previously it was just the two of us. So now we got to know... If a third person's gonna fuck up the dynamic, you got a lot riding on you, Vofrunk. Don't fuck it up. If I do fuck it up, I will make sure it is an entertaining fuck up. It'll, it'll be the kind of fuck up that people like dissect in the mm. future. So actually, you were the one who pushed for us to do Popeye on the show, isn't that right? Uh, kind of, pretty much, yeah. I <laughs> I didn't actually know that Popeye was technically a Disney movie. Yeah. I. By the rules of our show, it is. It's kind of scary. Just like a a reminder of, wow, Disney owns so many things now that it technically did not actually make. It's Well, this one, at least, isn't in control of Disney in the United States. Internationally, yes. But here, the rights still belong to Paramount. I, I love this movie. A lot of people hate it. And those people, they're entitled to their opinion, even if it is wrong. 
for what's supposed to be like a big blockbuster mm-hmm. released by like one of the biggest studios in Hollywood at the time, mm-hmm. like the first studio to be, we nowadays we're all bemoan the fact that all the major studios are part of these like big mega corporations. Mm-hmm. Disney ballooned up into its own mega, mega corporation, Sony Pictures, you know, mm-hmm. um, Warner Brothers is now a small part of the AT&T corporate empire. Yeah. But Paramount was really the first major Hollywood studio to become become part of like a big corporate conglomerate, Gulf and Western, Mm. which like had its hand in like all sorts of industries. Yeah. It's actually during this era that probably the most important person when it comes to the story. Well, there are two really big important people that you need to know about for uh, Popeye. And the first is producer Robert Evans, Mm -hmm. which... If you know your Hollywood history, you've probably heard of Robert Evans. He wrote probably one of the er examples of the Hollywood tell-all book, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which actually used my free Audible credit I got to download the audiobook of it. It's fine as a book. It is great as an audiobook because Robert Evans reads it himself <laughs> and it's like this and the whole thing's written as a stream of consciousness. So you're just oh, listening wow. to this guy with this like smooth slash gravelly <laughs> voice talk about like all of the arguments he got with oh he got in with other studio people and other directors <laughs> and uh, all that other bullshit and oh his various love affairs. This episode is not sponsored by Audible, by the way, but um No, we're just we're just fans of the product. Hide the money, hide the money. Oh god. Yeah, I don't really know that much about Robert Evans, to be completely honest, other than I see his name on like half of the movies that I watch. So Pretty much what happened was that when Gulf and Western took over Paramount Pictures, um the head of Gulf and Western, Charles Bloodhorn, he befriends this former um women's garment salesman, then later former actor, now wanting to become a movie producer named Robert Evans. And keep in mind, Robert Evans has little producing experience at this time. He puts him in charge of, VP in charge of production in 1966. Mm -hmm. And then later executive VP of worldwide production in 1969. And you could say that Evans certainly understood like the film audience at the time. There's this quote he gives, he says, Today, people go see a movie. They no longer go to the movies. The theater audience for movies had narrowed dramatically and become more selective. So he was really, you know, the studios during that era had the transition from when, like, people would just, you know, go to the movies, see what was playing, like, mm-hmm. the double feature with the newsreels and the shorts right. into the new Hollywood era. And more it's clean this- cut, a little bit more... Yeah. Less clean cut, in well, fact. Like, shaggier, edgier. Okay. You know, Hayes Code's gone. Now bring in the MPAA. Gotcha. Yeah. So, as an executive paramount, he works in such films. You've probably heard a lot of them. The Odd Couple, Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. The Italian Job, True Grit, Love yeah. Story, Harold and Maude, The Godfather, Serpico, The Conversation. Just to name a few, yeah. Yeah. He was also, and he talks a lot about this in Kids Stays in the Picture. He also talks about a bit about Paint Your Wagon, which was like one of the first things he had to deal with coming in as an executive at Paramount. I love Paint Your Wagon. (laughs) (laughs) I've never seen Paint Your Wagon. It's a musical movie starring Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin. No. Clint Eastwood and Lee Marvin are in a polyamorous relationship with Gene Seberg and... (laughs) 
I'm on the edge of my seat. It is a queer cinematic masterpiece, but I don't think they knew I, that it was. Paint your wagon? Let me write this on my hand so I don't lose it. Hold and, up. And the funny thing is, that's not even the plot of the original stage musical. Oh they my added God. The- They added the polyamory and shit? Yeah. Oh my yeah, God. Because it was 1969, and, like, that was when the the movie musical was going through this weird evolution because movie like you had movies like Dr. Doolittle and mm-hmm. Hello Dolly. Well, I mean, Hello Dolly was released around the same time as Paint Your Wagon, but basically the old movie musical where stuff like Gene Kelly, that was dying out. And mm-hmm. Paint Your Wagon is kind of like, it's trying to appeal to the the more sophisticated hippie crowd Okay. And it did cool. not succeed, but it did appeal to me. Yes. So I consider it a success. I, I, I think I identify with, with yes, I, 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 I'm, I gotta watch this later. I, yes. I, I really do. Plays a soft bisexual cowboy. I mean, subtextually, I don't think that they were trying to imply that he was bisexual, but. But they actually implied it. <laughs> I mean, if you want to come. If you can watch Paint Your Wagon and not come away from it thinking that Clint Eastwood was in love with Lee Marvin and Gene Seberg, mm. I just feel like <laughs> we are on different wavelengths. And actually, Paint Your Wagon is discussed in one of the big sources that I was using as research for this episode, a book called Fiasco, A History of Hollywood's Iconic Flops, which was written by James Robert Parrish, and it discusses... Not only Paint Your Wagon, but also Popeye. And then another failed Robert Evans semi-musical film, The Cotton Club. I discussed this in the 2019 films episode. I've seen the recently released um, Francis Ford Coppola director's cut of The Cotton Club, The Cotton Club Encore. Yeah. Well, I haven't seen the original. I really liked Encore. But Mm. so, yeah. So he's an executive in charge of Paramount. And then in his own words, he's pissed that he's not making the money movie producers are. (laughs) So he decides he wants to start his own independent production company. So initially the deal he has at pa- with Paramount is that he can still be an executive of Paramount, but he can also like be an independent producer with his office based at Paramount. Mm-hmm. But then he produces Chinatown, which is like a huge hit and like up for so many awards. Yeah. And everyone gets pissed off that Robert Evans gets to be both an executive and a producer. Mm-hmm. So Robert Evans just decides to leave Paramount and become a producer. And then... To dim- he gets diminishing to returns on his later movies, you know, Marathon Man, mm. Black Sunday. Black Black Sunday was did not do very well at the box office. So Popeye was supposed to be like Robert Evans' big comeback film. Right. That and another film he was producing in 1980, uh, the John Travolta vehicle, Urban Cowboy, mm. which is like Saturday Night Fever, but for line dancing. We, we got to get into a bit of backstory to understand... Okay why the hell they thought making a musical movie out of Popeye was a good idea. Uh, Three words, Little Orphan Annie. Yeah, there's Mm. actually a really weird history of comic strips being adapted as musicals. Mm -hmm. You had Lil Abner in 1956, Mm. which actually did get a movie by Paramount in 1959. Uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, 1967. (laughs) Which is rules. You're a good man, Charlie Brown rules. I've heard mm. good things. I have not actually seen or heard it. There was also a Doonesbury musical, which yeah. had Lauren Tom as Honey. Oh, yeah, nice. and that was and that was actually canon with the comic strip. Yeah. The series creator, Gary Trudeau, he took a sabbatical mm. from actually writing the script. Really? To make this musical. And then I think the most recent 
major musical adaptation of a comic strip was Adam's Family in 2010 mm. with Nathan Lane and who is Mortish in that? American ah. treasure BB New Earth. But as Peter said, the most famous and most successful of all of these um, comic strip to musicals was Lil Orphan Annie, opening on Broadway in 1977, lasted until 1983 with 2,377 performances. And keep in mind, wow. this is still like a little bit before musicals going on forever and ever and, and ever, ever on and Broadway ever. was the norm, like right. pre-Cats. Pre-Fandom, <laughs> pre-Mamma Mia, pre-Wicked. Mm-hmm. And then it won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical. So Robert Evans sees the show, and he tries to get the rights for Paramount. But, of course, with such hot properties, a studio bidding war results. Columbia snatches up the rights. Mm-hmm. Robert Evans, he wants his fucking musical. And let's get into the history of Popeye as a uh, character, because... So Popeye, like... At this point in 1980 has existed for 51 years, originally from the uh, comic strip Thimble Theater by E.C. Cigar, um, which started in 1919. Popeye didn't show up until 1929. Yeah. This was already running for 10 years. The ma- main character was the olive oil and her family. Yeah, it um, was olive oil, her um, her no good, mm-hmm. like rich dame chasing scumbag of a boyfriend, Ham Grady. Ham Gravy, yeah. Ham Gravy. It's such a funny name. Who actually is in the movie of mm. Popeye. He's like a, like a background extra played by mime Bill Irwin, who you nice. might know as Mr. Noodle from Elmo's World. Interesting. Also uh. the dad from the Jim Carrey Grinch movie. And then uh. her brother, Castor Oil, who actually mm. is does have a major part <laughs> in sorry. the movie. How did this guy come up with these names? Um, but yeah, so Popeye was, uh, it's most likely that he was based off of this man named Frank. Frank Rocky Fiegel, who was like a like a small town brawler, I believe. Yeah, he was very popular. Uh, yeah, he was at- only supposed to be for like that one arc in the comic strip, but then everyone, everyone loved it. He kept him. showing up, and then eventually they just had olive oil dump ham gravy mm-hmm. in favor of mm-hmm. of Popeye. And then it became Thimble Theater starring Popeye. Yes. And then the cartoon happened and then wartime happened and he became like a like a figure basically of like the navy yeah. and stuff and it was that was it from there. He was the, he was all over. The cartoons produced by the Fleischer Studios mm-hmm. who also did like the Betty Boop cartoons and the Superman cartoons yeah. and were distributed by Paramount Pictures and because of these cartoons at the time Paramount still had the movie rights to the character of Popeye. Mm-hmm. So Robert Evans, finding out that Paramount still has the rights to Popeye, is like, hey, Popeye could be a musical. Yeah. And then also he looks at 1978 Superman and is mm-hmm. like, yeah, <laughs> comic book movies can work. Mm-hmm. Let's make this one a musical. Musicals were out of vogue at the time with like rare exceptions and Paramount mm-hmm. never had much luck with them, them besides Grease, but... You know, Robert Evans is going to Robert Evans. Things get started in gusto, but Paramount's nervous about what the budget for this thing is going to be. It ended up topping out like $20 million, I believe. Mm -hmm. They decide to bring another studio to co-produce. This is where Disney comes in. (laughs) Disney comes in to co-produce and they make the deal. Paramount gets the U.S. distribution rights. Disney gets international distributions. I'm actually curious if Popeye is on Disney Plus in Europe. 
It's not in the United States. We had to watch it on Netflix. But but uh, any European listeners, if you can contact us, let us know. That would be very good. I know we've got like a few. So originally the film was going to be directed by Hal Ashby, who mm-hmm. you might know for Harold and Maude. Dustin Hoffman was going to play Popeye. Mm-hmm. And he was actually taking like dance and voice lessons for the role. Yeah. And then the studio's top choice for olive oil was Lily Tomlin. Yep. Shelley Duvall is perfect as olive oil, but Lily Tomlin also would have been really, really good in the role. And then to write the script, Robert Evans got Jules Pfeiffer, who, while writing a couple scripts, is probably best known as a cartoonist for The Village Voice. And he also Mm -hmm. did the illustrations for one of my favorite books as a child, The Phantom Tollbooth. Mm. Great book, right? Oh, yeah. And then Pfeiffer took the job on the condition that the film hewed more closely to the original comic strip as opposed to the Fleischer cartoons because he was a huge EC Seagar fan. Mm. Evans, meanwhile, was drawn to the pop property because he liked Popeye's I am what I am philosophy. I am what I am. Which all Evans felt like a kindred spirit to, <laughs> which is weird because a Popeye like a heavily principled man who cares mm. for the orphinks and infinks. Yeah. And, and all that. While Evans certainly was a man of vice. <laughs> Robert Evans' craziness factors a lot into the story of Popeye. Really? Yes. I did not know that. So they work on this, Pfeiffer works on the script from like 1977 to 1979. And then Hoffman, you know, who's been like trying to get into this role, meets with Pfeiffer. They do not get off on the right foot. According to Pfeiffer, he ends up like waiting in their meeting place for like two days. And then they get into spats over what direction a script should take. So Hoffman's like to Evans, okay, it's either Pfeiffer or me. Who's it going to be? Evans sides with Pfeiffer. So Hoffman leaves the project. Bye-bye, Hoffman. Bye-bye, Dustin. Who do they cast? Because remember, without a star, the project is close to going down. Yeah. Evans turns to Robin Williams. Who was right off of uh, Morgan Mindy at that yeah. time. I mean, it was still going on at the time, but that was probably yeah, what he yeah. was best known for. He had the spinoff Mork and Mindy uh, because he had a character on Happy Days that got very popular. And yeah, and this was his first uh, big, big role in a film. His only previous film role was like a mm-hmm. small bit part in the sex comedy film, Can I Do It Till I Need Glasses? Mm. This would be like his first big starring role. And, yeah. you know, he was excited for it. And he's playing one of the most popular cartoon characters of all time, yeah. really. And then after that, Evans brings in director Robert Altman. Mm-hmm. Studio's not very happy to have Robert Altman directing. <laughs> oh, Altman. Altman is a very strange director in terms of his style, what he's interested in and mm-hmm. like the stories he comes up with. Like a lot of his films are very much character pieces mm-hmm. in like the greatest definition of the world. Not very interested in plot, more just like sticking the characters in like a room, shooting like wide takes of like mm-hmm. multiple people and multiple angles and just having them like improv in character, never really following the script. So this movie in particular to me, when I was watching it, there's like a lot of like big scenes with a lot of people and a lot of things happening. It feels like you're watching an ant farm, you know? It feels like all of these people are in this frame and you can look, you can kind of like look from left to right and everyone's doing something different. And it's like, you just want to like minutely look at all of their interactions, like they're little insects. (laughs) That's pretty much Altman's style. You also see this with stuff like 
the the player. And at the time, uh, Altman wasn't doing so hot. He had a hit with Mash. Then, yeah. and this isn't like you know like against his will. He made like the deliberate choice to pursue his own like weird creative impulses, opposed to like oh, yeah. capitalize on his successes. So Mash comes out, then makes a bunch of stuff doesn't doesn't go anywhere with audiences. Mm-hmm. Some of the stuff has actually gotten like critical esteem over time, like you know Three Women mm-hmm. and um, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Yeah, Nashville ends up being a big hit, and then. Stuff goes nowhere with that. Yeah. But Evans liked that because he personally had a philosophy that he could nurture, like, directors at career low points and make successes out of them. Like, he claimed that's what happened with Francis Ford Coppola with The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Altman signs on, and he works with Jules Pfeiffer to work on the script. Mm-hmm. I think he was the reason that Shelley Duvall was in this project, actually. Yeah, Shelley Duvall was a frequent collaborator of hers. He insisted that she was perfect for olive oil. And he was that- right. It was her nickname in high school, actually. Really? Yeah. Paramount did not want Shelley Duvall. In nope. fact, even though she'd won, like, Best Actor at the Cannes Film Festival and yeah. for th- for three women, studios were very reluctant mm. to like hire her because of her quote unquote unconventional looks mm. and like off kilter acting style. Yeah. The same year Popeye comes out is also the same year The Shining comes out. Which, which was the role that like made her career basically and also was a huge changing point in her personal life. Oh yeah, because Stanley Kubrick is a lunatic who yep. terrorized her for the sake of art. Yep. Yep. And those effects are still uh, with her to this day. Yeah. She was more recently interviewed by um, Dr. Phil, who uh, like was like interviewing her. And she basically just straight out said, like, that messed me up and I need help to this day. And he just kind of sat there and looked at her and nodded. And she's like, I need help. You know, like the effects that like something like that can have on a person. I think Kubrick's daughter was doing like a GoFundMe. To help fund that. Uh, And then it got canceled because of Scientology, I think. Here it is. Hollywood Reporter. Scientology looms as Kubrick daughter scraps Shelley Duvall crowdfunding campaign. With Vivian Kubrick disconnected from her director father and the rest of her family decades ago, according to relatives. Now observers are wondering why she attempted to raise $100,000 to help the mentally ill actress when her religion forbids all forms of psychiatric treatment. Wow. She's been in a, uh, a, a like, a pretty bad place. She, like, when uh, Robin Williams passed a few years back, she claimed that he was still alive in the form of a shapeshifter. And, and Dr. Phil just didn't do anything about it. Fuck Dr. Phil. <laughs> I'm sorry to go off on Dr. Phil. In this. To Dr. Phil, he's not a real doctor. No, He could no. not have done anything to help her. He is a, he's a charlatan. But he has money. And Oprah <laughs> enabled him, so here we are. Yep. Um, but, um, yeah, so I, des- I do help that, I do hope that she does get the help she needs. Um, fuck Dr. Phil. Um, so at the time, even though Altman wanted Shelley Duvall, Paramount did not want Shelley Duvall. Mm. They wanted Gilda Radner, who was, you know, hot off the heels of being one of the original cast members of SNL and her one-woman Broadway show. Robert Evans, who in theory should be in charge of this whole thing, um, was not because of two reasons. The first was the aforementioned urban cowboy and the difficulties with that. 
And the second was he got arrested for drug trafficking. No shit. Yes. And as a result, ended up having to like produce a series of public service announcements for uh, his community service. Oh my God. And there's actually a, a really insane story where when visiting Malta, which is where they filmed Popeye, mm. he ends up losing a briefcase that it was like filled with cocaine. This could be like serious trouble for the production if he was caught. So he ends up having to call in a favor with his buddy, Henry Kissinger. Oh my God. <laughs> to get a what? diplomatic letter over to Malta to find the bag. Holy shit. I am not surprised that Robert Evans was friends with at least one war criminal. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Holy oh my shit, God. dude. That's wild. <laughs> I can't remember what's... just the, the amount of time it took made that joke. <laughs> well, I mean, he is. He, he is. is. He is. It's just the timing is... You're trying to be funny. But well, it was. It was. Oh, God. Of course he's friends with Henry Kissinger. Well, was. I don't know if now. Did you know that Maybe Henry Kissinger is an honorary Harlem Globetrotter? Fucking kidding me. What the fuck Harlem Globetrotters? Why is there a war criminal on the Harlem Globetrotter? I mean, it's no worse than that war criminal winning the Nobel Peace Prize. But I mean, I always thought the Harlem Globetrotters had integrity, you know? We gotta start putting our hats behind the Washington generals. Mm. So now we can get into what you we were into the composers. The music was done by Harry Nilsson, and um, <laughs> uh, he was also in a career slump at the time. They also considered, I don't know how far they got, like, or if they talked to him at all, mm -hmm. but they apparently also considered Paul McCartney, mm -hmm. John Lennon, which that would have been grim since, didn't he die in 1980? 80 or 81, yeah. It was very close. Yeah. Uh, Leonard Cohen and, oh, Ran wow. <laughs> and Randy Newman. So this, uh, the songs in this movie, I would describe as very simple in a... Uh, L l lyrics, but it works, I think. A lot of the songs are kind of like dreary and droning sometimes. They have like a lot of grit to them. So the first song, Sweet Sweet Haven, that big one, crowd song like introduce the movie. That one is probably like one of my favorite parts of the movie, I think, because I, I kind of knew what I was getting into going into it, but hearing these people drone just like Sweet Haven. Like, it's so strange and otherworldly, yet, like, sounds like every other national anthem in real life. And I was like, it's almost satirical, but it's not. And I was like... That's pretty this... much Robert Altman in general. Yeah, I was like, this is kind of genius. <laughs> and then you got it, like, you know, these, like, 
big gray foreboding buildings mm -hmm. and it, it just like it pretty much thumps on you yeah you were expecting a normal musical no this is what you're in for you're in for these like weird not depressing <laughs> but just you get put into like a mindset i think you're like yeah. brought down a level into your like subconscious <laughs> where you're experiencing the world in a different level I wonder what Popeye is like if you if you smoke marijuana before or while watching it. Have never partaken in illegal substances, so I wouldn't know. Nerd. But... <laughs> I, I haven't either. I wonder if it's something like I wonder if you'd get the same profound experience uh, that like '90s like stoners did when they watched The Wall. You know, like. So um, you know, everything's set. They got a cast. They cast a bunch of other people uh they have cast like a, a bunch of clowns a lot of the background characters are like clowns and mimes and circus performers and stuff like that we mentioned bill Irwin; he was a mime yeah but like in general altman was just like yes these are the people i want and the, everyone was like okay and then he casts another one of his buddies paul dooley as wimpy mm -hmm. and then who did he cast as bluto paul, paul l smith and but he doesn't do his own singing. The singing for Bluto was done by um, John Wallace, hmm. who was a backup singer for Harry Chapin. <laughs> so you know they've got everybody together. So they head over to Malta to film it, and they build this big set for Sweet Haven. Massive. Yes. So the set is an entire prop village. It wasn't just like a small set. These are like, it's an entire village that they basically built. It took 165 workers. It's in this little tiny bay called Anchor Bay. And it's the only uh, film set that's still standing in Europe that like was built in, in that capacity basically of like, this is just for a movie. And now it's a, an amusement park basically where you can go into all of these things and they host events and there's characters dressed as olive oil and Popeye. And one of the most popular attractions there is actually their wedding, yes. which is really Aww. funny. It's really cute, but it's also really funny because it happens on a regular schedule, which means they're constantly getting divorced. <laughs> or they're just renewing the vows. <laughs> I like the thing. Why do you gotta be so cynical? I mean, like the relationship is pretty uh, like tumultuous, I think. The reason they're able to turn this into like a tourist attraction because most of the time sets are usually like, you know, flats mm -hmm. that are like, give the illusion that they're like- They went all out. Yeah, these are actual like functional buildings for the yeah. most part. Now, if you go to Malta, you can visit Popeye Village. They didn't give it a paint job. It's no longer gray and dreary. They added some color to it, which disappoints me, but it's also understandable. Oh my God. I would love to like take a trip to Europe and be like, I'm going to I'm going to abroad to see a rundown Popeye village and it's all like gray and covered in seaweed and shit like that. Yeah. But no, I think it's really nice that it's still up and running. You know what they actually nicknamed uh the the set? What? Stalag Altman. Yeah, that was Robin Williams that did that. Yes. So they film in January because mm -hmm. they had to get the film out by Christmas of that year. Mm -hmm. And that's also why they filmed in Malta because the weather was warm enough during the winter. You got to deal with like the functions of a musical and also have it be a live action cartoon, which gives them like weird edges to it that will 
get into. Um, there were a, a couple problems. Mm-hmm. Um, With filming? Yeah. For one thing, uh, the screenwriter, Jules Pfeiffer, did not like the idea of Harry Nielsen writing mm-hmm. the songs. <laughs> and to make matters worse, um, Robert Altman would switch the songs of who they were meant for. Mm. Um which led to them because you know Allman, he's not a plot guy. Robin Williams, you know, you know, he has to speak mumbling with that pipe in his mouth. They had to redub all of his lines. Yes, because it like, and even with the redub, like I had to watch it with subtitles, it, and like some of the subtitles were even mumbling incoherently, <laughs> even though he was definitely saying words. It, it's so hard to understand him, but, like, he's just doing his best because Popeye, the original cartoon isn't any better, but, um, you know. Actually, it fits because they would usually, like, animate first and mm. then Jack Mercer, Popeye's voice actor, would, like, talk over it and yeah. the mumbling. Yeah. We got to talk about the arms. Um. So it was very, very hard to get those arms because, God, how the fuck do you do realistic-looking forearms? They still look very strange, but, like, they work enough, but basically, and I quote from Robert Evans, Robin Williams, he was unhappy with the arms. And so they had to try to like d- do different ones. And eventually they had some like flown in from Cleveland and those worked. And then suddenly Robin was Robin Williams was like, this is it. I'm on board. I feel like Popeye now. Um, but it yeah. took a very long time for them to find ones that worked and that Robin Williams was actually, like, comfortable with, even. Well, according to the book Fiasco, what mm-hmm. happened was is that um, the the original ones made by the American crew did not look good on camera, mm-hmm. did not function. And so they had to have new ones made in Italy. Mm. And that meant that they couldn't actually had to shoot shots where Popeye's arms weren't shown on camera. So they had him wear a raincoat, I think. The new artificial arms they had, um, it cut off his circulation almost completely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so then when his arms went numb, they had to stop, wait for the blood to get flowing to his limbs, and then put him back on again. Wow. Can you like can you imagine like taking those things on and off and just having these weird rubber hairy things that you have to like yeah, doesn't he also have, like, fake legs, at least in the boxing scene? I think so. Yeah, but that wasn't nearly as, like, big of a problem. And then also, not much dancing in this movie, because all men, you know, being all men, everything's got to be all, you know, filled with people. So right. no space to dance. And that Robin Williams wasn't happy with that. Yeah. there, There's not a lot of dancing, but this is still, I think it's a film that's very conscious of movement and how it can kind of, help create a, a lived-in environment. Like like mm-hmm. you said, it's the ant farm. I think the best example of this would be the everything is food scene, where mm-hmm. you just got all these people uh, going about their day, getting a meal, and yeah. they're not dancing, but it's mm-hmm. still undeniably a musical number because of how important movement is to the scene yeah. and how it's... It's just like, yeah, it's just integrated into the song itself, basically. And this is what Altman had to say. The only thing we're doing in Popeye is showing a microcosm of an impressed society. (laughs) (laughs) The fact he's... Yeah? 
Yeah. The fact he's talking about this with Popeye is the most Altman thing to he yeah. probably has ever said. It's such a strange way to approach a a cartoon or a comic strip, even. But like that's kind of what they are to begin with, you know? They're just little windows of these like random characters' lives. It makes so much it works really well. And you like hear all these like different conversations mm-hmm. about about all this different bullshit like the, mm. you know the, i mentioned the dinner scene yeah and stuff like that it's you, Pe- like it's a very noisy movie people are like one of the most prominent sounds in this movie uh, is a uh, shelly duvall just going oh 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 every time she's in a scene they just play that audio that's another trademark of um Alman films like the the dialogue always like overlapping you're like hearing multiple conversations at once yeah it's really interesting it makes it very dynamic yeah so we talked about the big opening number sweet <laughs> sweet haven and during that number we've got like a lone like small fishing rowboat mm-hmm. pulling and it's got popeye yep you know and he's come to town to- <laughs> i love that he just rows in like he's supposed to be a sailor but i i think of him more as a rower like he's on the open sea in a goddamn rowboat like He's got those uh, massive forearms. Yeah. He's gonna use them. Um, and so he comes in, we get Sweet Sweet Haven, mm-hmm. we see the cartoonish and yet somehow grim looking town. Yeah, it's yeah. such a, it's almost a, like apocalyptic in a way. Like this is like a corner of the world that survived after the apocalypse. And this is why these people are like this. <laughs> it's very water world. That, it is. that is that is true. Like it's very secluded and very in itself, and feels almost real, but also like an extension of reality. Yeah. Um, and it's also got like more interesting, like these big, elaborate, constructed societies. Yeah. You you know, like just camera pointing out, look how cool all this shit is. Yeah. You, you could say that for both Popeye and Waterworld. Sweet Haven just seems very self-sufficient. You know, I can't see anyone coming and leaving yet. <laughs> There's docks. Yeah, and I think it seems like Popeye is the first person to come there in the past, what, 50 years, maybe? Well, what we find out is that, like, you know, the town is under the thumb of the Commodore. Who yep. the Commodore is, we won't say yet. Not yet. Well, he's got two big lackeys. Bluto, who's, like, the muscle. Yeah. And then there's the tax man, who's, like, the first person Popeye encounters. And who makes him pay taxes for asking questions. And be new to town. Pretty much everything anyone anything can do, can. he's going to tax you for. Like, he tries to tax children for being curious. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. <laughs> and he's got, like, this, like, looks like a, like a homemade motorcycle. Yeah. Popeye's new to Sweet Haven, so then we get, like, his big opening song, Blow Me Down. Oh, look at that. Nobody seems to care. You've got so much to bear, man. I'm gonna... Blow me down. I said that. Which... I love this song, and it does a really good job at kind of introducing Popeye and juxtaposing him with this very insular, kind of xenophobic town of Sweet Haven, like... You know, he's kind of intrigued by this place. And, mm. like, as he's going through the town, everyone is, like, shutting their doors and, like, yeah. just ignoring him. him. And he yeah. just, all he can say is just this frustration of a, blow me down. Another thing we forgot to mention is that um, besides, you know, Robin Williams and also Bluto singing, um, 
all of this stuff is done on tape. And even with Robin Williams, I do not believe that they did like studio sessions with him like they did John Wallace for Bluto. So all the stuff is like they recorded the singing on set, which is normally a big no-no when it comes Mm -hmm. to musical filmmaking. Like the only other instance I can think of is like Tom Hooper with Les Mis and Cats. Mm. (laughs) But what I was getting at is that because of like how the songs are done, Mm -hmm. for stuff like Blow Me Down, it's pretty much half sun, half spoken. Like he'll start singing a bit and then like give some of his lyrics, his dialogue, and then go right back to singing. Yeah. Yeah, expect a lot of that in this movie. Yeah, I dig it. And so after the song, we get to he visits the house of the oils, which he needs somewhere to stay. Yes. And he meets um, the oil family. Yep. And then he meets uh, Olive Oil, who like come, who is like coming down the stairs, trying on different hats and calling everything ugly. And it's like, I can't get engaged in this hat. We'll just have to put it off for cancel it, whatever. And like we get we see later on that she's deliberately trying to get out of it and mm-hmm. keeps trying. It's like a. A weird thing where she keeps trying to get out of it, and then mm-hmm. after she gets out of it, she decides to go back into it. I assume for lack of better options. It's I, like, yeah, I also do genuinely love her, um, how materialistic she is, and how she just loves beautiful things and wants to be beautiful because, like, it comes off in a way that, like, yes, it's an excuse not to get engaged, but also, like, it's never annoying. It's it's very charming, and that's yeah. that's really, like, surprising for a character, you know? She's very lovable. Yeah, it's the way that she speaks, you know, and the way that she's like, oh, that's not beautiful. I like this, you know, like, I need to be beautiful. But she's also got more... I want a tall, slender, beautiful glass. Yeah, she's, like, classy, you know? It's, oh, my God. But I she's also got, like, more of an edge to her, like, in mm-hmm. comparison to the Fleischer cartoon. She's more in line with, like... The original Seagar comics. Yeah. You know, he stays with the oils. We get some, like, character moments Mm -hmm. between them. We get, like, a big dinner scene where, like, the whole family is, like, talking together. And Popeye can't even get, like, a word edgewise, even, Mm -hmm. like, a bite of food. Yeah. I also love that uh, they kind of hate each other at first. Because, like, they start off by, like, making fun of each other's names. And like their appearances and stuff like that. They're like, what kind of name is fucking olive oil? Who the, who the fuck is named olive oil, you know? And she's like, what's wrong with your face, you know? And then also Jay Wellington Wimpy is mm-hmm. there at the dinner, you know, because he's a mooch. And then also the Rough House owner, which George Giesel, I believe his name yeah. is, right? Yes. George Giesel. Uh, his main character trait is that he just fucking hates Wimpy, which, <laughs> is, going to, which is understandable because yeah. Wimpy is a mooch and also... Um, mm-hmm. Spoiler, but he's going to kidnap a baby and sell him. But hey, he'll gladly pay you Tuesday for that hamburger today. <laughs> That's he will another... pay you with the money he got from selling a baby. That's a, a thing. Not the selling the baby. I don't know if he sold a baby in the comics, but like those little like bits and stuff like that, like the uh, hamburger today, pay for it on Tuesday. Um, and the thing about the baby, like sounding like a rattlesnake and stuff. Those are all gimmicks from the comics. From when these characters were introduced. My favorite is probably the the 
oil father who's mm-hmm. always just like constantly like to everyone, you owe me an apology. Yeah. For slice, I don't even know if they exist because again, everyone's all talking at once. Yeah. You want to talk about like how good Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall do at carrying out the characters? Oh my God. Their dynamic yes. is so good. Yeah, it's there, there's definitely a palpable chemistry between the two. Yeah, it's such a nice love-hate relationship where they're, like, both clumsy and tripping over each other, uh, and they just, like, Popeye's like, oh, excuse me, excuse me, and uh, Olive's just like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing this, you know, and, like, you know, like, they're just all constantly doing things within, like, uh, each other's orbit, I guess is the right word for it, and they get tangled up in little tiny things that... And our tiny arguments and uh, little moments of niceness. Yeah. It's it's really, really nice. There's a definite sense of attraction there. I was actually familiar with, like, the Popeye characters. Like, I knew the mm-hmm. broad strokes, but I was surprised to find out by is that actually it's olive oil who's more the one mm-hmm. prone to vice than Popeye. Like, usually when you've got, like, you mm-hmm. know, harder-edged, man-of-the-sea types mm-hmm. and then you know, like, town mm-hmm. mouse. Mm-hmm. Um, Uptown girl. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. It's usually the the grizzled guy who's, like, the more morally dubious. But, but no, she's the one that wants to take the baby gambling. <laughs> and he's, like, yeah. the, he's got, like, the hard-edged principles and, like, yeah. stands by them. And it's a very, yeah, it's, very it's really interesting. Nice. I do, do enjoy that. And also, in terms of just, like, straight, like, carrying out the characters on screen, they both... We mentioned how great Shelley Duvall is, but also props to Robin Williams mm-hmm. as Popeye, who it's a very difficult role to pull off. I, Ew, and, um, yeah. and I think he's one of the few that could. I don't even think Dustin Hoffman probably could have. No, he could not have. You're right that this has like the aesthetics of a live action cartoon. Mm-hmm. And yet it's very understated in how it presents it. Like the more cartoonish gags, it's just like views from a distance, like mm-hmm. in Oh, yeah, that's happening. Like, I'm thinking, like, the beginning with the piano. He just like, narrowly misses it and, like, shoves the piano right back up. Yeah. Normally, a movie of its kind would, like, play that up more. Oh, yeah. But no, it's just a thing that happens. It's just subdued. It's like a real... It's like if cartoon things happened in real life. Yeah, it's very matter of fact. Yeah. So we've gone from the oils, and then we get to, like, another song about, like, the whole of Sea Haven interacting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, everything is food. Everything is food, food, food. Everything is food to go. Everything is food for thought. Everything you can eat is dope. It is food. Everything. Everything is food even mean? It means that the entire city of Sweet Haven, the entire town of Sweet Haven is in fact edible. Why do you think they call it Sweet Haven? But there's another big crowd song that sounds like a dirge and we get like wimpies, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger mm-hmm. today. I would gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. He would gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. And then a bunch of like visual gags, like someone knocks out Ham Gravy's chair and he's just like still sitting there as though it's still invisible. Yeah. Uh, and there's a very amusing bit where uh, Wimpy tricks a guy into buying him a hamburger and then he says, uh, the prices here are exorbitant. I wouldn't pay it if I were you. 
And then he mm. just leaves with his hamburger. Well, not his hamburger. Here, I'm buying. Who's paying? He's paying, I'm buying. Yeah. And this is also where Popeye, just out of the blue, strikes up a conversation with Wimpy, where he explains that he's been sailing in search for his long-lost father. Yeah. Who abandoned him when he was two. And who was a terrible person. Yeah. But he admired him anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get, we'll get into that, but... It also leads to one of my, probably my favorite gag in the whole movie, mm-hmm. where Popeye's just got like this beloved picture frame of his, as a memento, but it doesn't actually have a picture of his father. It's like an empty frame mm-hmm. and it just has like a blank piece of paper with my paps written on it. Yeah. And then we get to Olive Oil's engagement party where mm-hmm. once again, Popeye is shunned by the townsfolk oh, of Sweet uh, Haven. Did we uh, skip talking about the fight scene? Oh, right, fight scene. Yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, what happens is that these patrons at the rough house start harassing Popeye and calling him ugly and making fun of him for missing his dad. And, w- you know, Popeye <laughs> takes it all in stride. You know, that's one thing I got, it's a sense of humor. Where did you get that uh, pronunciation? <laughs> yeah, got an olive cut in your throat. <laughs> Because I was like, why is everyone bullying Popeye in this movie? Everyone's so- because he is an outsider. He's new in town, and that makes him an easy yeah. target for these small-minded townies. Yeah, who also, you know, are being like taxed brutally by the Commodore <laughs> yeah. and Crony. Yeah. yeah, it's just like you know, it's all- passing a buck of suffering onto another. Mm-hmm. Popeye takes it all in stride because you know he he's not a violent. Per- he's not. Vi- Violent by nature, mm-hmm. but he likes fighting. One of them says, "I bet your dad is as ugly as you are." Yeah, and Popeye kicks their asses, and it's a, uh, it's such a good scene. And then, meanwhile, yes. Bluto's watching from like his private booth overhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's a very choreographed scene. Like this is another this is another case of kind of cartoon physics being. Yeah faithfully reproduced in the real world and I think it works really well because it also feels kind of like a dance scene it the fight the fighting is choreographed like a dance sort of of the world but also kind of in this heightened reality where yeah people can break out into dance numbers or get into elaborate fist fights Mm-hmm. No. There's another cartoonish gag, like the one you mentioned, is like when when Popeye demands an apology and the <laughs> goons, they just like make the innocent patrons in there start mm-hmm. apologizing for them. And like one of them like scrunches down ham gravy and like yeah. Bill Irwin's using his mind skills to make himself like shrink down and being pushed down like yeah. like a cartoon character being turned into an accordion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's pretty much the aesthetic of Popeye in a nutshell. So after that fight scene, we get the engagement party. Popeye's once again shunned, so he, like, goes out on his own. And we get probably the first song in the musical that sounds like a song in a musical. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, He's Large, which is, like, Olive Oil's first big song. That's probably one of my favorite songs in the movie, I think. Yeah, so Olive Oil's a... 
friends? Are, are the wallflowers her friends? Or they, They're acquaintances, at least. Yeah. yeah. She doesn't seem uh, to be connected all that much. The wallflowers are basically uh, making fun of her fiancé, Bluto, and mm. Olive Oil is defending him. Like, yeah, sure, he's not handsome, but he's large. And he's large. <laughs> Large. It's the most passive aggressive love song ever written. Mm-hmm. And I just, I just, she's, while she's singing it, she's secretly packing her bags and planning to escape. So, and I just love how like blunt and it's both an innuendo and straight up at the same time. Just like, yeah. He's large. And she just keeps saying that. And like every time she does like crack up, I'm like, I mean, sure. And so Olive Oil like pretty much sneaks out of the party, ends up encountering Popeye and they Mm -hmm. have like another Altman-esque conversation Mm -hmm. where they just ramble on in character. Mm -hmm. And And at one point, Olive Oil, she, she can't decide which way she wants to go, and she keeps pointing at random, and Mm -hmm. the tax man comes by to make her pay a tax for impersonating a traffic cop, and then (laughs) he recognizes olive oil, and he apologizes and leaves. Yep. Because olive oil's family is basically getting exemptions from all the ridiculous taxes as long as olive oil is engaged to Bluto. Yep. And he's and Popeye is not pretty much called the olive oil out on this. Yeah. And Bluto is also pissed at this part. Yeah. Because she's not there. Yeah. And, yeah. He's, and he takes this flower and he starts playing. She loves me. She loves me not. And everyone <laughs> at the party is just terrified that <clears throat> and they keep pressing him to go on and not pick she loves me not because he's a very scary man i think my favorite scene like one of my favorite gags of the movie is when like someone offers him tea and he starts like chewing the teacup and like just eating it between his teeth and you see everyone's face just kind of drop like pretty much a ticking time bomb of a man yeah and we get to see him explode i mean i mean i mean you know what i mean you know what I say. You know what I mean. Easily my favorite song of the bunch, I Mean, which mm-hmm. we mentioned um, Paul L. Smith did not do Bluto's singing. It's very clearly dubbed over, and yet it somehow adds to the charm. Yeah. Uh, there's this random rambling verse where he talks about having a dream where he's beating himself up and uh, getting himself in a chokehold and waking up with, like, two black eyes and... <laughs> It rules. I'm sorry, but this rules. And he's, and meanwhile, we got to mention he's pretty much destroying the entire place. Oh, my God. Like tearing everything apart with his bare hands. Yeah. That must have been really fun to film that day. Oh, yeah. And it's kind of it's either before or right after like his um, he yells Olive like Dave from Alvin and the Chipmunks yells Alvin and like it echoes everywhere and stuff like that.
and he just has such a, like this big presence to him. Yeah. Well, yeah. he's large. He's large. Yep. Um. So we. So in the meantime, while Popeye and Olive Oil are outside, um, Olive Oil's basket ends up getting swapped by an old. Well, not, not older, older woman. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and inside that basket is a baby. They think it's a rattlesnake at first. And she's like hopping. It's what it's oh, one of, a rattlesnake. Yeah, no, it's one of those scenes where uh, like you see the chemistry of the two of them where she's like hopping in the air. She's like leaping and stuff. And like eventually he's like carrying her and stuff like that. Don't worry, Miss Oliver. I'll, I'll turn that rattlesnake in the shoes. Yeah. And um, then he's like. He opens it up and he goes, "I'm a mother now." <laughs> That's yeah, because, because the the baby has comes with a note saying, uh, "Love him as only a mother could." And Popeye takes that to heart. He yeah. uh, later on he talks uh, during the boxing scene when he sees that a uh, ox Oxnard Oxnard's mm. mother is there. He says, "Yeah, I'm a mother too. I get it." And yeah. I really really love that about him. Like. Like mm-hmm. Popeye is, he's this masculine, manly man, but he, he's not a toxic asshole. He, yeah. he's kind and loving and he doesn't start fights. He finishes them, but he is characterized by his strong moral principles and his love for his friends and friends and his family, his father, and now this baby that he has found that he's going to be his be this baby he's gonna be this baby's mother and he's yeah. gonna love him as only a mother could the little sweet pea who is played by um robert altman's uh, grandson yeah it's robert altman's grand grandson and he calls him sweet pea and olive's just like that's a stupid name and then he goes your name is stupid i'm this baby's mother and then like they basically just co-parent the baby for the rest of the movie i gotta mention this actually the baby's a really good actor. The baby is a pretty good baby. Yeah. Like how it like reacts to the cat. Maybe it's just like <laughs> Almond's directing style where they can just play around with the baby and like mm-hmm. be looser with it. But yeah. it works. Yeah. Like it seems like that baby's actually responding. So they come back to the engagement party and Pluto sees um, Popeye Olive Oil walking in with a baby, mm-hmm. which... And- and he's so mad because he thinks that, you know, Pop, you know, Olive Oil's been stepping out on him and mm-hmm. now has a baby with another man. Yeah. We get a shot where he sees Red, where Popeye and Olive Oil and Sweet Pea are entirely in red. And yeah. the buildings behind them are red and the walls are red. And mm-hmm. it's such a great little moment. Mm-hmm. And yep. they put Shut a lot up. of effort into this mm-hmm. one moment, and it's great. Um, it's a very good shot. It is a very good shot. Yeah. So now... Uh, now he has a nemesis. Yep, and there's a scuffle. Bluto pretty much kicks Popeye's ass. Yep. He declares that the oils are going to be taxed into... Pretty much nothing. Yeah. Okay, shorty, the oils is gonna be double taxed. Triple taxed. Quadruple taxed. Look at that. Oh, good. 
For the next morning, like all their stuff's being repossessed. Yep. And, yeah. and the tax uh, men's reading everything dad, off. Reading dad, everything. Uh, there's dad oil is hiding his face behind a newspaper and his wife kind of takes it away. And he was hiding the fact that he was crying. I think I hate the tax man more than Bluto, actually. Yeah. I mean, Bluto's kind of hot. I'm going <laughs> to put that out there. I mean, obviously he is a violent monster and olive oil is right to not want to marry him. But mm -hmm. I mean, Bluto's got this kind of a rough charm, which the tax man does not have. I was thinking more like how Bluto's a fun bad guy while the tax man's pretty much like a banality of evil bad guy. <laughs> the tax man doesn't even get a song. He doesn't deserve a son. But Bluto, he's large. And he's mean. You know what I mean? Yeah. So there's this prize fighter named uh, Oxblood o Oxnard, I believe mm -hmm. it is. Uh, basically, you know, anyone who can survive the ring with him gets a cash prize. And right yeah. now the oils need a cash prize. So Caster decides, hey, I'm pretty fast. I'm maybe I could survive in the ring with this guy. Yeah. So. And they like come by on this like floating arena that pretty much travels from place to place mm -hmm. called Max and Son Square Garden. Yeah. Which is actually a pretty funny little nod to the Fleischers. Yeah. The boxing scene happens and we get some and there's obviously there's more Altman dialogue. Mm -hmm. We get a reprise of Sweet Sweet Haven. Yep. And then the fight begins and, you know, Oxblood pretty much kicks Castor Oil's ass. Yeah. Yeah. But of course, Popeye can't stand for that. So he comes into the ring immediately. Yeah. Out of, is in boxing clothes without, yep. you know, just instantly. Like I think this is one of the scenes where Popeye looks best, honestly. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. Robin mm. Williams is Popeye. Also, very attractive. <laughs> I mean, I, I think a lot of that comes down to personality. Like, mm -hmm. like, yeah, he's he's kind and loving and brave, and that is sexy. And also, Robin Williams looks good, good with blonde hair. I'm just going to put that out there. Blonde hair, one eye. What else could you ask for? Um, yeah. The pipe. Yeah. But, yeah, no, this scene has some pretty good visual gags where he, like, twists his uh, fist, basically, and it winds up and it punches... And, yeah. But then he kicks his ass and, yeah. Gets the money. And the 10-day tax exemption. We forgot to mention yeah, that. Yeah, there's a tax exemption. <laughs> yeah. and, and yet the fight's illegal and you get taxed for going to a legal fight. Yeah. So then we lead into, um, you know, Popeye once again taking care of Sweet Pea and we get like a little song called Salen, mm -hmm. which is pretty much like, you know, Popeye and Olive Oil's like divergent philosophies on how to raise this child. Yeah. But oh, you can see the signs that they're getting along Popeye, more and Popeye more. wants to take Sweet Pea with him as he sails around the world. And Ooh. Olive Oil wants him and Sweet Pea to stay with her and be yeah. a family. And yeah. you, you get the sense that Popeye is kind of being, he's growing to like it in Sweet Haven. Even yeah. maybe not because it's not a nice place to live, but. Some of the people are pretty good. 
And somehow he fits there, you know? Yeah. It's a rough town, but he's also a rough dude, so. Yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> then it turns out that mm. Sweet Pea can predict the future. Yep. And the baby gets stolen. By yeah. Wimpy. Sweet Pea is, uh, in, the, in the comic strip, Sweet Pea is not psychic. The psychic mm-hmm. powers belong to a different character, Eugene mm-hmm. the Jeep. And <laughs> not, not Jeep as in the the, the vehicle. Um, mm-hmm. He predates that. He's like this mm-hmm. weird cat thing. I think he might be an alien, but basically really? he has psychic powers. And I think he eats orchids. <laughs> so they combine these two characters into this one baby. Yeah. Yes. Because you, doing Eugene the Jeep in a live action film in 1980 would have been very expensive. There's more flirting between Popeye and Olive Oil, and she reveals that uh, she knew that he would be okay because she asked Sweet Pea, is Popeye going to be killed? And Sweet Pea said, uh, no, basically. <laughs> and then she asked, is Popeye going to be horribly maimed? And the answer again was no. And that's how she <laughs> was, he was going to be okay. Yeah. And... So Wimpy, you know, decides to take him to the horse races. Of course. Popeye and Olive Oil uh, find them and uh, like, and they're like, no. And then Olive Oil's like, wait, you're winning. (laughs) Wait a second. Can we also mention two things? First, where the horse race is happening, it's also a brothel. Uh huh. Uh, what does he call it? The House of Ill Repukes. <laughs> yeah. Castoriel is there. He is visiting the ladies. Yeah. Uh, remember, he th- has to pretend when Olive Oil sees him there, he has to pretend that he just followed her there, or he totally wasn't vis- visiting the women who work there. Re- remember, this is a Disney movie. <laughs> Though I think for the international version, Disney did cut mm-hmm. a bit of the more unsavory mm-hmm. content. This is where we get uh, Popeye's main song. Yeah, his like, big Disney princess moment. In a brothel. And I've got a lot of muscle and I only got one eye and I never hurt nobody and I'll never tell a lie. Top to me bottom from the bottoms to me top. That's the way it is till the days that I drop. What am I? But like it's his self-acceptance song. He goes, you know what? I do belong here because I I am what I am. And he yeah. sings it in the middle of a brothel. And you can know I, what? Iconic. Can I mention how the horse race are done? Because that's also one of my favorite mm-hmm. things. Of course. Yes. So it's not like they're actually watching actual horses. Mm-hmm. Rather, it's like a carnival game horse race with like a guy turning the cranks yep. to make the horses go. And yet each of these same horses has different names in each race. Yeah. And basically, uh, while Olive Oil and uh, well, Olive Oil and Wimpy are watching the races and placing their bets uh popeye realizes that no he he can't allow this to happen because he is who he is and who he is is not someone who would let a baby be exploited for personal gain popeye has morals yeah 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 he's a strong moral code meanwhile olive oil is more pragmatic and like times are tough (laughs) yeah She's out, she's out of money. She needs to make some more. She's not getting engaged to Bluto again. Yeah, I think one of my favorite lines in the film happens around this moment where uh, Popeye goes, what am I? A barnacle on the dinghy of life. I always like, I may not be a physicist, but I know what matters. Mm-hmm. So... 
Popeye pretty much strikes out his own, moves out of the oils with Sweet Pea. Yeah. And he's got like a bunk bed hammocks. Yeah. And then here comes the tax man yep. with the 425 moving out tax and the 525 yep. moving, moving in tax. God, I love it. And yeah, Popeye's pretty much a fuck you tax. Yeah. And beats the shit out of it. Well, no, he just gives one punch. Yeah. And he like slides off the dock into the water. Mm-hmm. Boom. Tax man's defeated forever. Whole town <laughs> comes out to celebrate. And then everyone respects Popeye. Yeah. After that, there's no real um, disrespect towards his character, part of the government, and uh, becomes a respected uh, town hero. Town hero. So keep that in mind, folks. If you ever move to a new town, just beat up the tax collector and the mm-hmm. people will accept you. Granted, yeah. that might lead to some trouble when the town fails to collect the proper proper funds to maintain amenities such as parks and libraries but right. you can cross that bridge when you come to it you see you see that's for the politicians to find out <laughs> he's just here to yeah so in this hustle and bustle wimpy uh gets orders from bluto who's found out about the baby's psych abilities mm-hmm. to kidnap the baby yeah which he does out of less greed and more fear yeah i mean he he still kidnapped a baby. That's there's really no way to justify that. This baby keeps getting kidnapped over and over. I mean, he's a baby. It's yeah. not like there's anything he could do unless he spontaneously develops telekinetic abilities. Right. You know, that's for the sequel. You know, in despair over losing the baby mm-hmm. and like regrets pushing olive oil away. And that's where you get the song that's probably had the the largest afterlife of any of the songs in this film, He Needs Me. It could be fantasy, oh. Or maybe it's because He needs me, 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 he needs me. I think it's really nice. I also very much enjoy Probably my second favorite after I mean... It's just, yeah. Shirley Duvall does such a good job just, like, with these, like, it's just so simple and sweet and charming, and she's just, like, breathily just like, he needs me, you know? Like, that's that's it, you know? And yeah. I, I, I need him, you know? And that's yeah, and the song. Isn't that what a relationship is in the end? It's yeah. being needed and needing someone in return, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, this song has a... It's been in a few different things. It was in uh, the Paul Thomas Anderson movie, Punch Drunk Love, Mm -hmm. with a new orchestral accompaniment by uh, the film's composer, John Bryan. Mm -hmm. I forgot to mention this. Though the songs are written in Popeye, are written by Harry Nilsson. They were arranged by Van Dyke Parks. Mm. He also wrote the songs for Brave Little Toaster. And he also did the music for Follow That Bird, the Sesame Street movie. Nice. Uh, back to He Needs Me. Last year, uh, in 2019, Carly Rae Jepsen released a, a new studio album after like uh, after a few years. And there's a song on it called Everything He Needs, which reworks the lyrics of He Needs Me. It, and the melody. Yeah. Part, it's a 
partial cover of this song from Popeye. And it's, it's like a like a sexy electro pop song. Yeah. Apparently, the reason why she did that, she actually is a fan of Popeye, mm-hmm. the, mu- the movie. Yeah. And uh, apparently, the label didn't want to produce the song because they felt Disney wouldn't, like, license the rights to use He Needs Me. Yeah. So what she did is that she went to Disneyland mm-hmm. with a fake contract. Uh-huh. Went to meet Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. Uh-huh. Got him to sign the fake contract. Sent a photo of the fake contract to her label, mm-hmm. and then that convinced the label to go for it. Oh you know, God. as much credit as a big mega corporation like Disney is due, they did go through with it and let Carly Rae Jepsen produce the song. I wonder if she got to use that trip to Disneyland as a tax write-off. <laughs> God. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, it's, it's a really sweet song, and it's definitely surprisingly, but also uh, thankfully stunned. Uh, the test of time a little bit, you know? Yeah. What a legacy. And then... So Popeye writes a letter to a baby. In song. In song. Yeah. And it's really cute because it's like uh-huh. he's talking about like his father and stuff like that or his family life and like being there for this baby. And it's just really, really nice. Meanwhile, we find out that Bluto has taken... Mm. the baby to the Commodore mm. and surprise dun 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 mm. the Commodore is Popeye's father Poop Deck Pappy Poop Deck Pappy and by Ray Walston who I yeah. uh, briefly had confused with Ray Winstone and mm-hmm. I thought that he had I thought that he was in both uh, Popeye and Cats but <laughs> no they are two different people Ray Walston did actually have a history of uh musical theater. He was in the 1951 London production of, of South Pacific. Mm-hmm. And he was also in Damn Yankees. And he was in the film versions of both of those. Nice. At the time, and possibly even today, people probably best know him as um, Uncle Martin in the 1963 sitcom My Favorite Martian, mm, where yep. he played a Martian that had disguised himself as Bill Bixby's uncle <laughs> and live among the humans. Love that. And then after Popeye, he was also um, Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm. You know, the the teacher that keeps like Jeff Spicoli in his house to like teach him like eight hours of history. Yeah. And... Uh, Judge Henry Bone on the uh, Twin Peaks trend chasing show Picket Fences. Nice. Yeah. So, so Poop Deck Pappy is an asshole. Yeah. yeah. The, the reveal is Popeye's father in theory is a big reveal, but, you know, it just sort of appears and, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, because you, it, it's kind of one of those pieces of the plot that, like, oh, yeah, this is the plot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plot is secondary to Altman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and... Pappy's like this bitter, hateful old man. Yeah. He just, he's got this entire, he's, uh, he's got two songs, basically, uh, It's Not Easy Being Me, which is about how he's a bitter, hateful old man, and it's not fun for him. And then there's, uh, Kids, which comes later, which is just him ranching about how having kids sucks. I didn't even realize Kids was a sonnet first. Yeah. Because he's just, he's not even singing, he's just talking the lyrics. Yep. Give them everything they want. And 
what you get in return. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing but heartache, heartache, sadness, and misery. And a bad time once in a while when you try to give them a bath and they don't want it. And another bad time when you want to do something that you really want to do, but all they want to do is know what you want to do. Yeah. Not even the subtitles on Netflix realized it. It doesn't like yeah. italicize it like they normally do for songs. Yeah, put the little music yeah. notes next to it. Like, yeah, this is a song. Like an angry Rex Harrison. Yeah. <laughs> With angrier Rex Harrison. Yeah. I feel like Rex Harrison's angrier. Yeah. I feel like something um, also to mention up to this point in the movie is there has been very few mentions of spinach. Yes. Um, which is an interesting. <laughs> they make spinach well, part of his part of his. This, this is kind of a Popeye origin story. Yeah. So, uh, well, I the mean, cup- spinach is going to be very important at the climax. Yeah. And, and that's kind the- of like how Popeye uh, came to Sweet Haven and met Olive Oil and adopted Sweet Pea and learned that that spinach is awesome. There's a few moments where people bring up spinach and he goes, no, gross. You know, like he doesn't like it. And that's actually how it was in the original uh, mm. Simple Theater comic. Yeah, I had to come around to it. Yeah. Originally, and this is what I found out, mm. he got his super strength by rubbing a magic hen. Oh, my God. <laughs> So apparently Poop Deck Pappy, a.k.a. the Commodore, mm. has some treasure he's got hidden. Yep. And Bluto wants it. So mm-hmm. when Poop Deck Pappy rejects, like, using the baby for anything because yeah. less out of concern for the baby and more that he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. And Bluto's like, we could rig the bedding house. Why would I want to rig the bedding house? I own the bedding house. Yeah. Bluto turns on him and pretty much like ties him up in his own ship that he was like using as like his reclusive fortress. Yep. And Bluto goes off with the baby to find, use his psychic powers to find the buried treasure. Yep. And uh, Olive and Popeye have to save, save the baby. Yep. Once again. Well, yeah. Olive also gets kidnapped. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. And um, so yeah. Popeye and Poop Deck Pappy mm. and... Wimpy and the oils, they all have to, like, chase after them on a boat, and that's where kids happens. Yeah. This is the climax of the movie, where they're on this, like, weird, like, steamboat-looking boat, like, uh, a steampunk-looking boat, you know, like, it's got a big wheel, it's very, like, stylized and stuff like that. And suddenly, like, the rest of the scenes are on the water. And pretty much we're getting, like, classic Popeye, Mm -hmm. where, you know, it's, like, Bluto kidnaps, olive oil, hijinks ensue, and I'm not gonna lie... I didn't, I don't hate it. I still like it, but it brought me down a bit. I, it was weird diverging from Sweet Haven, to be honest, because it, it felt like a, a complete divergence, even though there was no real, real plot. And this is what it was leading to. And this is what people mostly know Popeye for, you know, being a sailor on a boat. Yeah. With Although Ludo. I do have to wonder if it would have been better mm-hmm. if it didn't, if Ray Winston wasn't angrily yelling about kids over it like <laughs> I, I, uh like the scene at like the the earlier fight scene at the at the rough house uh it's got this really nice or instrumental piece by uh tom thomas pearson which mm-hmm. sounds great it's a it's a real rip roaring piece and i mean it, it would have lost something if ray winston had been yelling about kids over it what I, but I, I was like, you know, I was getting into like the whole 
you know, what Robert Altman said, the microcosm of this suppressed town. Yeah. I was like, no, I don't want fight scenes and yeah. madcap chases. Give me more long rambling dialogue pieces. Yeah. What is wrong? Why? You know, I kind of wanted that. Although yeah. I do kind of have to wonder if, you know, Popeye was not a huge critical or commercial success. And I think that's because it was, you know, people mostly knew Popeye from the cartoons and if you're a fan of the Popeye cartoons uh, and you come to see the Popeye movie and you have to sit through this this weird rambly exploration of this oppressive town mm-hmm. and this sailor from out of town and his place in it, you're going to end up being weirded out and disappointed. Mm-hmm. And I I am also pro weird, rambly, oppressive small town. I think right. that that is the best part of the movie. But, yeah. You know, I, I get why people would not have gravitated towards it. We sort of forgot until it got to that point that this wasn't like a like a full on Robert Altman auteur piece. This was no. a like a big budget Hollywood musical blockbuster yeah. that Robert Altman hijacked. Yeah. 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 What I like about Popeye is that it feels like it was the opposite of focus group tested. Mm-hmm. Like it's this big budget musical disaster that right. feels like something that only this specific group of people could have made at this specific moment in time. And yeah. a lot of most big budget, big budget movies these days, they're, meant to appeal to as wide a demographic as possible. They are engineered to be as inoffensive and widely appealing as possible. And there's something inherently wrong with that. I like quite a few of those movies, but they they start to, you know, a lot of them feel kind of impersonal and like you can kind of forget them after a decent amount of time and... You know, it feels like they're just keeping you on the hook for yeah. the next movie. And. And even the ones that are more like off kilter, like, say, like the Deadpool movie, that still feels like an artificial kind of oh, off kilter. Of course, it's definitely heavily geared towards a certain audience. This one, like, like you're saying, I th- it feels like it, Robert Altman kind of did what he wanted and didn't really care who would like it. But he figured that someone would. And, like, for all that a lot of people are baffled and horrified and bored by this movie, it does have a very passionate cult fan base. There are quite a few people who love this movie, who Mm -hmm. will defend it to their dying, with their last dying breath. And, Mm -hmm. you know what? It's, uh, as a wise person once said... Mm-hmm. I'd rather be nine people's favorite thing than a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. And this movie ends just on a uh, a simple note of yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, he wins the day. The, there's a treasure, and Pluto goes uh, swimming out into the sea. And he turns yellow. He turns yellow, and um, it ends with the theme song. We should mention the octopus. And there's the octopus. Yeah, which. Didn't work yeah. because of the salt water. So 
Robin Williams is pretty much like to the crew, hey, you know, Disney's co-producing it. They build those animatronics. Can we get one of their like Imagineers to do it? Yeah. And Disney said, no, you cannot get one of their Imagineers oh, to do damn. it. Which is actually a shame because back when Walt was in charge of Disney, he actually did use the Disney Imagineers to build mm-hmm. animatronics. Mm-hmm. Like the birds that mm-hmm. like... Julie Andrews has perched on our finger in Mary Poppins. That was an animatronic yeah. made by Disney. So was the alligator in some parts of The Happiest Millionaire, which I'm sure we'll get to on this show at some point. Yeah. Oh, boy. But, yeah, so there's, like, a big fight scene in, in like, the water. Bluto force-feeds Popeye the spinach. She's so dreaded. And, yep. you know, Pied's Popeye. He gains his super strength, beats the shit out of Bluto. Yep, realizes beats the, the shit out, Beats the shit out of the octopus. Realizes the benefits of spinach. Yeah. And spinach because he ate his spinach. And the Commodore may be a child abusing absentee father prick who taxed an entire town into submission and oppressed them. But hey, his treasure turns out to be Popeye's old baby stuff. So I guess he's an okay guy after all. Woohoo! And then it ends. Yep, Popeye the Sailor Man, they do that and Son goes out. Yep. Um, I can say that the legacy of uh, the spinach, there is a brand or at least was. Yeah, there is a brand of uh, Popeye's canned spinach still out there today. Their Facebook page was active up like up through like two years ago when it stopped. About a month ago, there was a meme that went around um, of like that family feud bit where like the question was, what's Popeye's favorite food? And this lady goes, chicken. And the answer is spinach or whatever. And Popeye's um, official spinach uh, Facebook page came back on and went, no, (laughs) it's spinach, basically, in response, and then hasn't been active since again. (laughs) I feel like I like this film. Mm -hmm. A lot of my stuff, I feel like, sound like criticisms, or at least that's how I looked at my notes, but I actually really do enjoy this film. Yeah. Like, it's criticism. The stuff that sounds like criticism is actually stuff I really like about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a film you really gotta, like, get, be willing to, like, get on its wavelength. Yeah, you have to, like I said, you have to kind of submerge yourself into, like, a weird, <laughs> a weird observant level, you know, of your subconscious of, okay... Yeah. Here we go. If you want a musical with not much dancing and simplistic <laughs> songs and long rambling dialogue scenes yeah. and these big, ugly looking foreboding sets, mm-hmm. then Popeye is the movie musical for you. Popeye is everything I want to be in a man <laughs> is the ideal model of masculinity. In my mm. opinion, we could all stand to be a little bit more like Popeye. And I, otherwise, I've said everything I think I've wanted to say. But, uh, yeah, there, there aren't really any movies like Popeye mm-hmm. in recent memory. I, I guess you could maybe make a case for Cats, which is also <laughs> a big budget musical disaster. But, yeah, like Popeye is a very deliberate movie. Everything like you get the sense that everyone making it had a vision yeah. Even if it started out as like a soulless little orphan Annie cash in, it ended up not being that. And mm. Cats is just inept on every level. They were trying to make something inoffensive and boring that would maybe get them some Oscar noms. 
Yeah. And instead they made this weird trek into the uncanny valley. Yeah. I wonder what it's going to be like looking back on it uh, and if it's going to be a a similar experience to looking back on Popeye of like, let's see what was actually going on here kind of deal, you know, of like, there's, I feel like there is so much to take away um, in summary. And also like Popeye as a character, like was already 50 years old at that point, you know, like has, had existed for a long time. And I think since the eighties, Popeye has become very antiquated, you know, like that was one of the last legs of like the, one of the last like huge things that Popeye did. There were like a few more cartoons. There's like a Hanna-Barbera one. Um, there's been like promotions with different companies, you know, on like streetwear brands and stuff like that. Um, but like there was supposed to be that Gendy Tartakovsky Popeye movie mm-hmm. from Sony, but then that got canned. Yeah. Which Grant did leave Tartakovsky open to do Samurai Jack season five. So it's pretty much gone the way of Betty Boop, where she's less a character and more a thing for like women's apparel. Yeah. And like kitschy merchandise. Yeah. Yeah. But in 2004, there was like an ad with uh, Popeye for um, an adoption company and like he officially adopted Sweet Pea. Which leads me, it's really, really sweet, but it's also like, it took you 80 years to adopt this child officially, which is kind of funny. Sweet Haven has some Byzantine adoption law. (laughs) Yeah. So Popeye the movie, Popeye the movie has like a reputation of Mm -hmm. being a flop. But that's not accurate. No, it made some money. It made a a small profit. It grossed $49.8 million on a $20 million budget. That's like a little bit over double its budget, which is usually the standard for like making a profit in Hollywood. And for comparison, Annie, the movie that Popeye was trying to cash in on and actually beat to the punch. Popeye Mm -hmm. came out in 1980. Annie came out in 1982. Mm -hmm. Um. Annie made $57 million yeah. on a $50 million budget. Wow. $50 million budget in 1982 money. Yeah, and Altman would continue to have a career after that. Um, he, would, he would go into some television stuff. He would actually do a collaboration with Gary Trudeau, the creator of Doonesbury, with Tanner 88, yeah. and he'd do some other movies. And then he really comes back big with The Player mm-hmm. in, like, 1992, I believe. Mm-hmm. And he keeps working consistently until his death in, like, 2006, I believe. Wow. Meanwhile, Robert Evans, the film's producer, his career does not go so well. Not Mm. because of Popeye, but because of the film he produces right afterwards, The Cotton Club, Mm -hmm. which we mentioned before. But not because of the film itself, but because of the resulting murder trial of The Cotton Club. One of the producers of The Cotton Club was uh, a musical and comedy review producer named Roy Radin. Mm -hmm. Um, And and he became producer because Evans and Radin were introduced to each other by an associate of both of them, a cocaine dealer named Karen Greenberger. (laughs) So they each established a producing with like 45% of the film and then 310% between two other parties. 
And Greenberger was offered a financer's fee, like a finder's fee, like a $50,000 finder's fee. She was not happy about that. She felt she was getting screwed out of like producer credit and the, like the producer money. Roy Raiden ends up murdered. Oh Four gosh. people arrested, including contract killer William Menser. Oh shot multiple times in the head. Blown up with dynamite. Oh my god. And uh, Greenberger gets convicted of second degree murder and kidnapping. The, the whole thing gets dubbed the Cotton Club murder trial. Evans is like considered like a person of interest in the case. Yeah. But he like pleads the Fifth Amendment during the preliminary hearing under the advice of his attorney, Robert Shapiro. Yes, the OJ Dream Team, Robert Shapiro. Wow. Of course. But Greenberger did claim during your 1991 trial that Evans was not involved in the murder, mm. though two other witnesses did say Evans was involved. So whether or not Evans was actually involved is like a riddle for the we ages. Don't know. Evans would continue, like, producing stuff after the Cotton Club, um, the Chinatown sequels, the Shoot Two Jakes, Silver, uh, Jade, the Phantom, like, the mm -hmm. Billy Zane movie where he's, like, in the big purple suit. Yeah. The Val Kilmer film, The Saint. And then the final film uh, he ends up producing in his career was How to Lose a Guy in Ten Days, starring Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. Mm, interesting. So that's... Pretty much all we have to say about Popeye, unless anyone has anything else. It was a project of love, I think, and strange, strange interests, you know? Robert Evans and Robert Altman are somehow two great tastes that go well together. Bobby squared. <laughs> Granted, yeah. there's not as much Evans in there, but... No. That's okay. And thankfully, very little Robert Shapiro. And that's all we have to say on that. We wanted to thank you again, Peter, for being on the show. Yeah, being our first, first thank you for having me. I had, yep. a, I had well, a wonderful time. And uh, who knows? Maybe I'll show up again sometime to talk about another big budget musical disaster. Maybe we've got something planned. Maybe we don't. Who knows? Maybe we're rubbing our hands right now in knowledge, even though nobody else out there knows. So do you have anything you want to plug before you head out? Uh... Well, you already mentioned uh, These Days Are Ours, a Happy Days podcast, which uh, which is a podcast where my co-host and co-host Joe and I, we talk, we're talking about every episode of the classic 70s sitcom Happy Days. Uh, right now, we're, we've just gotten into season four. So next season is when the shark jumping happens. And I am also on Twitter at Sphericals. That's S-F-E-R-I-C-A-L-S. So that's pretty much it for this show. I'm Dallin Agatone. I'm the other one. Signing off. Well, you made it this far, so I guess you like our show. Want to support it? Check us out at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Or simply follow us at lost-in-the-vault.simplecast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Lost Vault Cast and Instagram at Lost Vault Podcast. You can also talk with us through our email, lostinthevaultpodcast at gmail.com, or join the official Discord through our website. Thanks for listening. And also, please remember to rate, review, and share. We really appreciate your feedback. Thank you. Next time on Lost in the Vault. From Walt Disney Pictures and Amblin Entertainment. How far off is this place? It's pretty far. They were two extraordinary people. Here's towns across that. Yeah. Forced to set out on an impossible journey. Now, they'll risk everything they have Daddy! to escape from everyone who tried to stop them. Daddy! 
It's an unforgettable story of courage and triumph. It's America. A far-off place. Rated PG.